Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. This is the weekly show where I talk to some of the top entrepreneurs and industry professionals from around the world to inspire and empower the next generation of business leaders. The Enterprising Gen Z podcast has been listened to in 48 countries around the world and we have been ranked as the seventh best podcast about Gen Z, which is a figure I'm immensely proud of. On today's show, we're talking about a topic which we've never really covered before, which is real estate. And I thought there is absolutely nobody better to talk to than Omni Casey. is the founder of New Leaf Redevelopers and the author of Cashflow Breakfast Club. Now Omni is one of the best real estate investors in the world. Last year alone he nearly bought a property every single week which is crazy. That is a lot of houses. From our discussion we found that real estate investment is actually really not that difficult and it's pretty accessible for anybody to get into as a viable career. Now we hear a lot about real estate investment in the news so it's great to talk to Omni about kind of the exact ways to get started and if it's possible to start without any money? The answer is yes by the way. Now we talk about a whole host of topics from things like why property investment is so popularized in the media nowadays to how you can get started today. We also talk about different purchase strategies like multiple offer strategy, portfolio purchase strategy and seller financing and also creative structures. If you don't know what they are keep listening and you'll find out. I really do hope you enjoy this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. If you do please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from or a five-star written review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. Hey Omni, how's it going? I'm excellent, Sam. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely no worries. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you to do is just introduce yourself and tell everybody a bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Omni Casey. I go by Omni, the investor guy. I do real estate investing. i um, been doing it for just over 20 years now. Uh, started out in Hawaii, where I'm from. I'm currently in uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington D.C. And uh, we buy, you know, cash flow. Uh, that's really my my focus. I was obsessed pretty early on with becoming financially free, or what I call cash flow um, freedom. Um, and I do that through buy and hold rental properties, and do a lot of coaching programs and and some education now. But um, I have three kids of my own, and and my whole focus as of late has been, you know, how do I make sure that you know I can educate not just my kids, but as many people as possible, to kind of learn the principles that I have learned later in life. Um, because if I knew what I knew when I was 15 or 18 or 19 starting out, um, it would have been so much easier to kind of get to where I am. And I probably would have been able to do so many more awesome things. Um, so that's kind of my passion is education and real estate or education about real estate as well. I love when a passion kind of becomes intertwined with the reality. I think that's kind of where the magic happens. So I see a lot of content in regards to real estate investment um, and, and things like that on social media and, and real estate gurus um, or or real estate coaches you could call them Um, why do you think there's so much of this content circulating at the moment on social media about real estate investment and why is now a good time to invest yeah, that's a great question. So so the first part is, yes, you're right. I see more people talking about it than ever before. Um, I've shifted my, my terminology. I don't use financial freedom as much. It's very important, um, but it's almost clickbait because people talking about financial freedom are often not financially free themselves, especially on you know, various social platforms. And they're, they're you know using it to exploit to kind of buy a program or whatever it may be that might help you down a path. Um, I, the, the term I use is cash flow freedom. Um, and, and the difference between financial freedom and cash flow freedom is ultimately 
Um, no matter how much money you have in the bank, let's say you you have a big score and it's a, a million dollars, million pounds, whatever it is, um, that may be enough for some people for a year. That may be enough for some people for a month or ten years. Right? It really depends on your lifestyle and your your you know spending habits. Right? And that's not freedom. So a lot of money will never equal freedom because we can surprise ourselves on how high we can raise our our expenses. Um, the more I make as an income, the more I tend to spend. And that's just kind of human nature. And so uh, shifting it to cash flow freedom is not money in the bank, but it's passive income, income coming into you cash flow wise, regardless of what you're doing, it's passive income. So if I stop working, I know I have X amount of dollars coming in, let's say $10,000, $20,000 a month coming in. And if my expenses are less than $10,000 or $20,000 a month, then that means I'm financially free, right? I don't need any more than that. Um, and then I get to do with my time as I want, right? Maybe I'm going to work on a different project. Maybe I'm going to go start up a business. It's risky to start up a business or it's risky to to learn a new investment like real estate. Um, but once you kind of have that that cash flow freedom, you can go take those risks that often gives you the uh, the chance to succeed at a much higher level. So, um, you know, in terms of real estate in the, in, you know, why people are are driving or being driven towards real estate more so than, than I think ever before is I think there's a lot of information about real estate investing. When I started 20 years ago, there were no podcasts, there were no websites really to just get free information. Um, you know, but now there are so many great resources, so many people willing to coach and train uh, to help people and you bypass that learning curve. And, and now that there's information out there, um, it's easy to kind of compare apples to apples, real estate versus any other types of investments out there. And real estate tends to be uh, one of the best investments in good economies and bad economies as an investment, if done correctly, um, one of the safest investments out there. So you're the founder of Newly Free Developers. I'd love to know um, kind of specifically what your role is um, and why you started it. Yeah, so it's it's a family investment company. Um, so I've been an investor individually, and then at some point, when you have enough properties, you need to have a corporation, you know, around it. Um, asset protection is one thing, but just you know, tax structures and and so many reasons why it makes sense. Um, also, um, I started to get my wife involved in real estate investing, and then eventually my kids. My oldest is thirteen, my my daughter's ten, and my my youngest is eight now. Uh, they started to get more involved, so this kind of created a formalized structure where they could all play a role and and whether they're an employee, whether they're a CEO in training, um, but it is really our family portfolio and legacy that we created. Um, so it's something that um, it becomes a family business moving forward. I actually, I thought Newly Free Developers is a family business because I saw you and your daughter in your LinkedIn profile, I think it was. Um, so, I mean, this, I've got, I've got a question now. Um, and obviously the demographic of the people listening to my podcast is relatively uh, young, you know, we're Gen Zers, um, probably either in secondary school, university or just graduated um, or probably in a couple of a few years into employment. Um, so we may not have a huge amount of capital to uh, a huge amount of capital, sorry, to be uh, investing into real estate straight away. And I was wondering if it's possible um, to get, uh, you know, get started in real estate investment without any, you know, initial finance or initial capital in your bank. It is. Obviously, the more money you have, the easier anything is, right? And um, But where any business owner, any entrepreneur, any real estate investor really is is worth their weight um, or is has a competitive advantage is if they can figure out how to do it 
without the money, right? Because if you can figure out how to do it without the money, once you have money, it just becomes that much easier. Um, so in real estate, I would think it's one of these, the easiest businesses to do without your money. You need money. It doesn't need to be your money though. And so um, I run a, a education platform uh, and a group. It's called the Cashflow Breakfast Club named after after the book as well. And really that's all, all what we teach. We teach you um, skills. We teach you knowledge of how to go find deals, how to put deals together, how to negotiate. And um, there are really three key factors to any real estate transaction. There's the person that finds the deal, right? You got to find the deal first. Um, that's a very, very important part of that transaction. There's a person that brings the money to the deal, the lender or whoever's bringing the money. And then there's a person that what I call the developer, the person developing the, the deal, the one that is the architect of not just the, the real estate itself, because it, maybe it's a building that's already built, um, but the architect of the business structure around that investment and what's going to happen after we buy it. Are we going to fix it up? Are we going to rent it out? Are we going to sell it? What's the strategy there? And so those three roles often are the same person. If you're an experienced investor, um, I've been doing this for a while, so I play all three roles in most of my transactions. Starting out, I didn't play all three roles. I played one role. I, I had to figure out I had no money starting out. I had no experience because I've never done it before. So I learned how to go find deals. And, and, and I got really good at finding deals. And once I found really good deals, you'll be surprised how much money will find you. People that have money, that have, you know, maybe they're 20 years ahead of me. They don't have time to go find the really good deals. If I bring them a deal, they'll either buy it from me or they'll partner with me and I get to use their money. So my first few transactions, no money in the deals whatsoever. I leveraged my hustle, if you will, uh, to kind of get to that next level. Um, so, so learning a skill within the trade is going to be important. Um, learning how to find deals. And after that, you can source with partnerships. Now, beyond just partnerships, there are various types of financing structures that you can put little, you know, 3% down, 5% down, 0% down, depending on, on, you know, um, you know, obviously every region has different types of loan structures. Um, but regardless of what the traditional conventional financing states, if you find a really good deal and you're the only person that knows about that deal, you'll find enough money and you'll find experience to help you through that transaction. So those three aspects you mentioned, which one was the hardest? Yeah, the hardest part. So, I mean, I'm, I was in Hawaii, right? I was, uh, 20, 20 ish, 21, maybe uh, when I, when I started and still just figuring it out. And I was actually working at a surf shop. Um, I sold surfboards and, you know, um, uh, I actually flipped surfboards. I, I, I brought them, bought them from people, you know, that were damaged and used and I fixed them up while I was there. And then I'd put them on consignment and sell it for a profit. Right. So I started to think, man, I'm really good at this. I made a lot of money selling surfboards. What's that next level? And I just love business, right? Various businesses, uh, real estate just happened to be the next level business in that aspect. I can buy uh, something um, at a certain value. I do something to it to raise the value. And then eventually I have a profit to sell and then eventually got into buying and holding it and, and renting it. So yeah, so that business side of things really kind of uh, took off for me, um, you know, early on in Hawaii. And it was over a surfboard at that surf shop that I met my first mentor. He came in to buy a surfboard and I was selling him a surfboard. And, you know, I just kind of got into the habit of asking people what they do. And I got interested in real estate, but knew nothing about it. And he's like, I'm a real estate investor. And I said, tell me everything. Like, what can I do to be a value to you? And I didn't ask him to be a mentor. That wasn't really a concept to me at that time. Um, but I just said, I want to 
I want to work for you. I want to be an apprentice. I didn't ask him for any money. I just said, what are you doing? And I'm going to show up and put value in. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, my dad had owned his own construction and roofing company. So I was not afraid of actual manual labor. And I said, I'll, I'll go do that for you. And so he said, okay, I showed up at a few of his sites and he just became my accidental mentor. Uh, and he saw my work ethic and he said, all right, well, if you do this, this, and this, go read this book, go read that book. And he put me on the right path to gain the knowledge so that I knew how to do that next step. So I think it's finding a mentor, finding a coach or finding a group, um, to kind of encourage you of where to, you know, progress your learning is the most important first step before you, you go anywhere. So I'm going to give you a scenario. It doesn't pertain to me, but it might be the position that lots of my listeners may be in. So let's say we're earning a decent living and we don't have any money in the bank or not a lot of money in the bank to put a deposit down. If we want to get on the property ladder, what are the best ways for us to go about this? Yeah. So there's a couple options, right? So if you don't want to work with partners um, and let's say you want to buy the property by yourself, um, every region has different loan pro products and sometimes there's zero down or maybe as low as, as 3% down um, loan products. So not a huge down payment like a 10% or 20% down. So fire, first find out what your loan products are and that varies by region. Um, so right now there's zero down and 3.5% down in my region. Um, and if there is that ability, uh, the first thing that I usually mention, and I, I put this in, in the book, The Cash Flow Breakfast Club, is get rid of your housing expenses, right? So so we all pay to live, right? At, at some some point, right? We're paying rent or we're paying a mortgage. Um, and everyone has a certain expense, whether it's $1,000 a month, whether it's $3,000 a month, it's, it's different for everyone. Um, but that becomes a consistent um, theme throughout your life at some point, right? That starts at, you know, at a, you know, once you leave your, your parents' house and then, and it never stops after that typically. But if you can end that cycle and say, let me figure out how to get rid of the housing expense forever. And then now that $2,000 or $3,000 a month that I was spending on my housing, I'm now just putting it into my bank account to do nothing but save up every single year to buy a, a rental property every single year to do that. So if you're spending 2000, 3000, get rid of your housing expense is, is one of the most important things. And uh, one of the things easiest ways to do that is what I call house hacking. And so it's buying a house uh, with one of these low down payment or zero down programs, depending on what's available in your region. And qualifying for a traditional loan, if you have an income, then you can do that. Um, but buying a house that has the ability to be segmented off and rent part of it for, for income. It's like having roommates, right? So if you're buying a, a what we call a duplex here, so it's it's two separate units um, you know, combined in one building, you live in one side, you rent out the other side. Now that rent coming in from the other side is enough to cover your loan payment, enough to cover your, your mortgage. And so essentially you're living for free. Or you buy a big house, a five bedroom home, you only need one bedroom and you get a bunch of roommates, right? Those roommates, almost like a, a student housing type scenario. Um, some people can last you know, in that, that lifestyle for a few years. It's probably not something you do for your entire life, but you're able to you know, rent it out to some buddies and then that rent covers the mortgage. So you are living for free. If you do that for one year and you were paying $3,000 a month prior to that, now you have $36,000 in the bank that you didn't need to earn anymore, right? So you put that $36,000 at the end of the year, that's your down payment on your first rental property. And you do it again for second year, that's your down payment on your second rental property. And it's as simple as snowballing that every single year and putting that cash flow aside uh, to be able to, you know, 
don't spend it yet. Just, I would say, give yourself a good somewhere between three and five years of nothing but buying rental properties every single year, saving up. And at the end of that, you're going to have enough cash flow to maybe cover your expenses. You might be cash flow free or financially free at that window. If not, you're very, very close. Um, so it really comes down to sacrifice and discipline at an early age is, is what I would usually suggest to people. You mentioned a few strategies there, um, you know, after you've, you've purchased a property, um, which is the most profitable strategy? Yeah, so the only th- strategy that really plays into your long-term financial freedom or cash flow freedom is a buying and holding strategy. So I buy a property and I hold it and I'm going to rent it out, right? So I might make a larger sum of money if I sell it right away. But now that's a one-time transaction versus if I buy a property and I plan to keep it forever, eventually I'm paying off that mortgage, I'm paying off that loan, and I still own the property. And that rent is typically increasing with the economy, right? So as the economy goes up, the rents typically go up. So you're going to have higher amounts of cash flow in year three, year five, year 10, year 20. And that becomes an income that becomes a business for you. So rather than a one-time, you know, fix and flip um, payment, I definitely encourage people to try to buy properties and never sell them. Because if you plan on never selling it, it doesn't matter if the market's going up or down, right? People are worried about the real estate market or the economy in general going down right now. I don't worry at all because I typically buy and I never worry about what the value is after that because I'm going to keep them forever. I'm the, the rents typically don't go down here. The rents either stay the same or, or slowly start to go up depending on how the economy is. So I know that the rents that I'm collecting is going to cover my expenses and I'm going to make a, a, a profit on every single door that I own after that. You kind of semi-answered my next question, but it's about the economic climate. So we're going into a period of recession. Um, The value of the pound has tanked. How is this impacting your industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So so I have multiple roles. So I run a brokerage, um, a real estate brokerage as well from the retail side. So I help agents that are in the business of helping people buy and sell real estate. So that market is if I, you're just a real estate agent, you're kind of nervous because the transaction count's going to drop by a third at the very least, maybe in half over the next couple of years. And so that means that there's half the 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 income to go around for the same amount of agents, right? So you got to get really good at what you're doing if you're going to survive in this in in this environment as an agent. But once again, that's just a job. And that's why I preach to my agents, I want you to be great agents, but that's just a job. At some point, that's going to go away, whether you stop or whether the economy stops and you need passive income or cash flow freedom at some point. So it really doesn't change my strategy as an investor. I actually am ramping up to buy more um, properties this year or as it slows down even more. So last year, um, my wife and I purchased, we had a goal to buy one property every single week of last year. So we were hoping to buy 52 properties in 52 weeks. Um, and that would have been our biggest year ever. We typically do somewhere between 10 and 15 properties a year. Uh, we didn't get to 52. We got to 46. So we closed on 46 properties last year. Um, and those are rental properties, right? Those properties that we're probably going to keep forever. And the goal is probably to buy more next year because I think the market's going to slow down. There'll be more opportunities, right? People will need to sell. And those who are positioning themselves to take advantage of that, help people out in the process. If you need to sell, they need a buyer. There's not as many buyers. I'll be a buyer. I'm not as worried about what the value is going to be a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, because I know that I'm only going to buy a property that the rental income makes sense, covers itself, and I have additional 
positive cash flow above and beyond the expenses. So every time I buy a property, that's one business, positive cash flow business that I buy. And it might give me $200 a month. It might give me $2,000 a month, right? For per property that I buy. And it really just depends on the size. And by itself, it's not enough for anyone to be financially free. But you stack enough of those on top of each other. You buy two, you buy three, you buy four. Eventually, you're buying 40 plus a year. Um, it becomes easier to see how every single property you add just further increases your stability and your passive you know, financial freedom. 46 properties. I mean, that's incredibly impressive. Are they kind of all in the area that you live in or you've kind of bought properties which are a bit further away? Yeah, they're all over. So like I said, I'm originally from Hawaii and I started investing when I was in Hawaii. So I live as about as far as you can from Hawaii while still being in the United States um, on the East Coast right now. So I buy anywhere between Hawaii and here. Um, I would say the last few years, I've made more of an effort to buy closer to where I am. Not because it's a better investment, because I wanted to have properties that I could because I have teams all over and they take care of my properties for me, but I wanted to have it close enough where I can take my kids who I felt was important to have hands-on experience to go see the properties, visit some renovation projects and, and just kind of get their hands dirty in the business of real estate um, so that they could, you know, hopefully learn lessons, you know, through experiences. So yes, a lot in my area as of now. So would you recommend people buying properties in areas where they physically are or would you advise people to, you know, go further afield a little bit. Yeah. I don't think um, where you live um, matters at all. I understand. And I coach a lot of people and, and everyone's instinct is I want to buy in my neighborhood. I want to buy in my backyard. I get it. That's where I started as well. Um, but the that limits you to so such a small area is really what it comes down to. And the reason why I needed to buy in my backyard was I just didn't know how to build teams, right? And so I had to get really good at building teams in areas that I wanted to invest. And once I found the right teams and the right team players who helped me manage that investment, uh, then it became a much easier decision. Um, the fact is sometimes I buy properties right next to me in the same neighborhood. And those are typically my worst investments because if it's close to me, I'm hands-on. And guess what? I'm a terrible property manager. I'm a terrible, you know, contractor. Um, I hire the best of the best to go do that for me. But if it's so close, I feel like maybe I should be doing it. And it actually becomes a subpar investment for me because I'm not good at that, right? So I need to hire people that are better than me to manage my properties, to manage my, my construction sites. So actually, the further away it is away from me, the better investment it ends up becoming. So obviously as part of what you do, you do a lot of coaching of, of kind of early stage real estate investors. This is a question for, you know, any coach in any industry I always ask, what are the biggest mistakes that you see kind of early stage real estate investors making early on? Yeah, I think, um, and you're right, that's so relevant to almost any industry, right? So um, from the real estate investor industry or real estate industry in general, um, it's a fun, it's very creative, but there's no very linear path. And so you need to get really good at a lot of different things starting out um, and understand many different things, but you need to niche down and get really, really focused on one or two things as that's your specialty. Um, so I need to understand everything about real estate, but starting out, I needed to find like my skill set needed to be, I need to find deals. I need to know how to find off market properties and get really, really good at that because that's what I was able to do. I had time, but I didn't have the money. 
right? If I'm starting from a position where I have money and I don't have time, then the advice is is different as well. So it's understanding where you're going to focus. Don't try to become an expert at everything, um, but really just focusing down and trying to do it on your own, right? Because that's, that's, that's a risk um, that many people take because when you're thinking about something as different as real estate or real estate investing, when I started, I was almost embarrassed to be like be a real estate investor. I didn't want to tell anyone because I, I didn't know if I was going to make it right. What if I failed and I didn't want to like, you know, bring everyone along along with me, you know, on that ride. Um, and so many people, when they're starting something new, they might do it in secret. I will say the sooner you bring your friends, your family, your community along with you, um, the easier one that'll hold you accountable. Um, but the easier it will be for you to openly find mentors and coaches because if you're not telling anyone about it if you're not vocal about it on social media really you have it's going to be hard for you to connect with or or really um you know uh find that mentor or coach that you need because it's really not till you find that mentor or coach that you can really get to that next level no one can compress uh can progress to their full potential by themselves so I was reading over your um, some of some of the things you were posting on your website. You've got two, so I'll just mention them now. It's omnitheinvestorguy.com and cashflowbreakfastclub.com. Um, I'll I'll tag both of those and I'll put both of those in the in the um, in the notes below if any of you want to check them out. So, but one of the things I read that um, you think that Airbnb potentially isn't the best strategy to use, um, and I was just interested why that was. Yeah, I think that. Um became one of the most popular strategies um, for good reason. It, it, it gave a really good return during the pandemic, right? People got locked up um, for a while. They couldn't go anywhere. And then they started to look at, and people didn't want to be in big buildings and, and hotels with shared common space. And so there's this kind of huge demand for ability to vacation with your family, but be separated, right? And so the Airbnb, um, someone renting out their home became that solution. And so the demand drastically skyrocketed, you know, over the last two years um, because of that. And so because of that, some areas that typically have no Airbnbs altogether, people start to buy properties and convert them to Airbnbs. Um, and, And what we're seeing right now is the demand is dropping drastically, but also more importantly, the government agencies and the municipalities are starting to push back on people doing Airbnbs in their neighborhoods or in their areas. Um, I'm from Hawaii originally, and it is almost illegal to own an Airbnb, which sounds crazy, right? People go to Hawaii to vacation all the time. But one of the biggest industries is the tourism hospitality industry led by the hotels. And so they are absolutely making sure that, um, you know, everything is done to make it very hard to own an Airbnb. So if you bought a property in Hawaii last year that you were able to Airbnb for $10,000 a month, you know, and that covers your mortgage and you're making a nice profit, now it's illegal to do that. And maybe you can only rent it for $3,000 a month and your mortgage is 5,000, right? So you're now losing money from that one government decision, um, which you had no control over. And, and there are many areas like that where people started to buy Airbnbs. They made a lot of money for a year and a half. Um, the values went up in that area. But because you can no longer Airbnb or the rules have changed or the demand has changes, the values came back down um, much more drastically than if you were just buying a, a long-term rental property. 
So in terms of, so actually you're right there, because I know in Paris, um, there's like a mandated time which you're allowed to rent out as an Airbnb. You're not allowed to, I think it's 120 days a year. You're not allowed to rent it out more than 120 days per year. So it's very interesting you say that. The next thing I want to move on to is your book. So it's called The Cashflow Breakfast Club. Um, the first thing I want to ask about is kind of what was your motivation behind writing this book along with your wife? Yeah, so it's... Um most of my real estate career, um, my wife and I are very private. Right? We, so we put our head down and we just invested and we did our thing and we never really, you know, had a big social me- media presence. We didn't really, you know, share a lot of what we we're doing along the way because it started with one, we didn't know if we were going to mess it up and we were going to succeed. And then when we start to succeed, it kind of felt like, well, if we tell people about it, we'd be bragging and we didn't want to do that. Right. And so we look up and it's like 15, 16 years later and we've reached a level of success that we're, we're proud of. But there are so many people along the way that because I have not been sharing my knowledge, they could have been in a much, they could have taken the ride with me, right? My, my, my friends, my family, people I went to school with, um, people that I've coached in, in my area within my brokerage, my real estate brokerage, really, I have not started, was not sharing it all the way along the way. And I start to feel guilty for that. And so really, it's driven by guilt. Um, I start to coach more people on real estate investing, um, no matter what you're doing, right? Everyone needs two professions. You, you need to have active income. I surround myself with a lot of real estate agents. That's their active income. If you're an IT, if you're a, 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 a podcaster, if you're whatever it is, you got a really good active income, you become good at that. Um, but everyone needs the passive income and needs to understand how to turn your active income into passive income. Cause at some point you're going to want to stop doing what you're doing, or you may have to stop doing what you're doing. And so I started to coach on that. Um, and so one, I didn't feel as qualified to be a coach because I just, you know, figured this out and I had mentors along the way. So I wanted to write the stories of my mentors and the lessons that I learned along the way. And so I went through and kind of created this, you know, draft of a book, not really thinking it's going to be a book, but every transaction that I did, lessons that I learned, my successes, and probably more importantly, where I failed and what did I learn from those failures? And that became my manual of my coaching. And I said, okay, well, here's, I wanted to be financially free before I was 30. And I did, I became financially free and here's what I did. Here's why I was able to do that. And then in my thirties, I had a a focus for generational wealth and here's what I shifted to because of that. So I'm not saying it's the only strategy someone can take, but it's a very clear path that worked for me, worked for many of my friends and my clients over the last few years. Um, And so it became a manual. And then um, last year, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, my wife said, Hey, we, we, you wrote it already. Let's put it into a story format and let's actually make it a, a book that might be entertaining for people to read and put it out beyond just the people that I know. And so uh, we, we, um, I, I'm not comfortable telling my story. Like I said, I'm, I'm a private person. So I had this hurdle to get over. So I actually converted the main character from me to this guy named Dan, right? It's a fictional character. It's a, it's a story format, but it's a guy that happened to grow up in Hawaii that happened to get into real estate, happened to work at a surf shop, happened to get right. So it's, it's my story. 95% of the time It's easier for me to tell that story through this fictional character's lens. Um, but it also, I think it's easier for the reader to feel like they are that main character or something somewhere along the line and have this awakening awakening of maybe mindset that I had to go through, um, evolve my mindset and my understanding because what I thought was impossible at 20, at 23, I realized was possible. And then what I thought was impossible at 23, by the time I was 24, 25, because I was always evolving, evolving my mindset and surrounding myself with mentors, I was able to realize that 
it's absolutely possible. I just needed to have the right strategy or the right team in place to do that. So it became my book. It's, you know, uh, saves me a lot of time. If someone says they want my help, I give them the book first. I said, read this. This is the first five years of what I would tell you. And then if you have any questions, let's talk. So in terms of the number of people who you've a coached and, and B of you've educated through your book, I'd love for you to put that success into perspective for us. Like what does that what does that look like? Yeah. Um, I would say over over the last few years, thousands of real estate investors I've personally coached um in terms of actual conversations and and coaching sessions on um in terms of who's reading my book and buying my book and actually benefiting from that. It's harder for me to track that. So, you know, I get testimonies, I get people reaching out to me on social media saying, Hey, your book changed my life. Thank you very much. So I have anecdotes to kind of help me. I mean, sales are great, right? But I don't know if sales are changing lives, right? So someone reached out to me, um, uh, just two days, three days ago, um, young, young, young guy, he's 18 years old or so in school. And he read my book. He heard me on a podcast somewhere, read my book, came to our local investor meetup. It's called the Castle Breakfast Club. Very, very quiet guy. And then he kind of reached out to me after the event and he said, again, you know, I want to pick your brain and, and talk a little bit. Um, and so I got to like the question I ask everyone, like why real estate, right? You can do so many things, but why, why do you want to become an investor? I, I understand why I want to be an investor and I, and I think it's, it's, it's a great path, but it's not for everyone. And, you know, everyone has a different answer, but you know, he said, I'm 18. I'm going down a path. I'm, I'm in school to, for this, this, and this. Um, and I'm still undecided on what I want to do. But I feel I'm meant to change the world. Literally, this 18-year-old kid is telling me, I feel there's something big. Like there, There's a drive in me. And after reading your book, I realize I can't change the world unless I'm financially free. Like I'm going to have to work the next 20, 30 years figuring out what I'm good at to make money before I'm, I'm stable enough to try to even attempt to change the world or, or make my impact that I want to do. And he said, if I can follow your path and fast track my cash flow freedom or financial freedom over the next five, six, seven years, that gives me the rest of my life to work on things that might change the world. I'm like, that's the best answer I've ever heard. That's exactly what I feel in deep inside of me, right? So it's not about just working for the sake of working. It's not about working for the sake of eventually being able to retire. It's getting to a level of baseline financial freedom or cash flow freedom. Doesn't mean that's the end. That doesn't mean that's your retirement. It's that's getting to a point of now you can put your time, effort and energy in something that is meaningful, that you're passionate about, that just may change the world or change at least your life or your family's life. So I'm excited about that. And that's really why I, I do the coaching that I do. I love that. What an inspiring story. Um, I'm actually, I'm trying to get into that space as well at the moment, um, you know, talking in schools, even in young offenders institutions in the UK, um, just about, you know, why entrepreneurship is, should be promoted and um, why more people should go into entrepreneurship. I know it's, it's massive at the moment among Gen Z, about 50% of us want to become entrepreneurs and want to do our own thing. I think the idea of um, being your own boss and I guess being financially free and cash flow free, that's not something that particularly motivates me as a person. I think for personally what motivates me is having the freedom to do something which I'm genuinely passionate about. And at the moment, as a uni student, I feel like I'm hitting that. Um, and, and, I, and I love what I'm doing. Um, so I, you, you mentioned it, I think, in, as in the response to the last question um, about everybody needs two professions, one for you and one for your money. Um, and I read a bit of a summary about that on your speaker notes. Um, and I'd love for you to go into more detail because that's a really interesting statement that I've never heard from anybody else before. Um, so I'd like to get your kind of perspective on 
why you think that's true and, and a bit more information about that. Yeah. So uh, two true uh, two professions is probably not the right term, but that's what I've been saying. And 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 there's been multiple trainers that have used that that terminology, but it's active income versus passive income. And anything you're doing, um, so you can see my 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 shirt here, but one of my favorite sayings was I asked myself over and over again, like since I was 20 is, are you playing the right game? Right. And so I, you know, I'm always asking myself that because, um, there's games in life, there's games in business that we're playing. And I got really good at the active income game. I got really good at earning money and I'm a hard worker I'm, I'm creative. And so I like I, every, I was always hustling, starting business, but it was me. Like if I stopped the, the money stopped. Right. And so I made a lot of money even at an early age and then had to realize that that wasn't what mattered. Cause if I wanted to take a month off or a year off or two years off or stop and focus on something that wasn't making me money, I didn't have the freedom to do that. And you're right. I'm not driven by money. I can care less about money itself, but I got obsessed with my inability to choose and my lack of freedom. Right. I felt like I was living a good life, but I wasn't free. And so um, realized that I was playing the wrong game. Learning how to get really good at active income was a game, but it wasn't the most important game. So I had to figure out how to get good at passive income. Right. And so that's the second job. Your active income is whatever you're doing to make you money. You don't need to be passionate about it. To be honest, you can go work a job that you don't love, but it makes you a lot of money and it feeds your passion then great. Right. So I'm lucky now because real estate is my passion and I make money doing it. But I know people that have a great IT job. They're not passionate about IT, but it makes them a lot of money. And then it allows them to funnel that money into something else in my world. It's real estate and real estate investing. And they can be a real estate investor through the money that they're making at their IT job. So it's understanding the active income and then but that can't be the only thing that has to shift into passive income um, from an entrepreneur standpoint, right? Entrepreneurs go down this path of starting up a business and you are the only employee in that business and you're maintaining it and that's you bootstrapping it, right? That's what almost every entrepreneur has to do. And I've done that many times over many businesses. And at some point you look up and you're saying, I have a business, I'm self-employed, but I'm still the employee. I have freedom to choose, not to not go into work today, but the reality is I'm not going to get paid if I don't go into work, right? So it's that catch 22 of setting up a business and changing the game is, you know, um, thinking, you know, working in your business, right? As the employee or working on your business as the CEO. And so that might be shifting your, what game are you playing? Are you playing the CEO game or are you playing the admin or the employee game for your business? And if you can spend more time playing the CEO game, you're going to figure out ways to exit your business and hire people to take over what you're doing and you're still making a passive income or you're able to um, provide your creative influences, you know, from um, your highest and best use position. So now I think we should go into more detail and um, specific, you know, different investor strategies. So I read over your profile and there were kind of three ones that you mentioned. So multiple offer strategy, portfolio purchase strategy, and seller financing and creative structures. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of explain what they are and why they're useful. Yeah, absolutely. And all three of those, we can kind of lump them together in various strategies. Um, when you are... 
I think of it as I, I go back to my um, my dad owned a construction company, roofing company, right? We got a tool, tool belt. There's a lot of tools. There's a hammer. There's a saw. There's there's multiple tools to choose from. And if you only have one tool, you can only do one thing, right? If the only tool you have is a hammer, you just know how to hit things. That's it, right? But you know, if you had a saw, if you had a measuring tape, if you had multiple things to choose from, you can get more creative on what you can build. And so your business that you're building is dependent on the tools that you have or the tools that you know how to use. And so those things, those multiple offer strategies are different tools in your tool belt. And, you know, if the only thing I knew how to do was to make cash offers, I need a lot of cash to do that. Or I need to find people with a lot of cash to do that. And that's it. And so I'm going to have a very specific um, business plan and I'm very limited on that. But what if I was able to explain seller financing and seller financing is where the seller, instead of just selling me the, the property to me and them getting a lump sum of money, maybe they want cash flow. They bought that property for cash flow. Maybe they just got tired of managing it, but they still want cash flow. They can be the bank. I can still provide them cash flow. They don't own the property anymore. But now instead of me going to a big bank, they become the bank and they're getting a payment every single month of cash flow that solves their problem. But it also provides me with an ability to buy a property with almost none of my own money. Right, they become the bank at that point, and so now that's a strategy. If you learn how to do it, it doubles the amount of opportunities that you have from just a cash offer strategy. Um, there's there's subject to there's there's conventional financing, and you never know what works for the seller, right? And so every seller has different um, needs, and we just always assume sellers just want money and want the most money. The reality is that's not always the most important thing to them. Sometimes timing, sometimes terms, sometimes convenience um, is is equally, if not more important. So when I make an offer to a seller, I typically make three offers at the exact same time to the seller, meaning I compete against myself. One offer is a cash offer. One offer is a conventional financing offer. And one offer is a seller financing offer. So my cash offer is my lowest offer right? Because it costs me the most amount of money. The conventional financing where, I, let's say I'm putting 25% down, it's a slightly higher offer. Um, but, you know, there's high interest rates right now. So it's it's not that great. So it has to be a higher, uh, a, an offer that's still beneficial to me. Um, but if they're willing to be the bank and provide me a, a low interest rate for the next three to five years, I can offer them a really high offer market value above market value if they're okay getting that in payments and maybe getting a balloon payment in two or three years. So they can choose between low, medium, and high price based on the terms that I'm offering. And so now they're not considering between yes or no when they're looking at me. They're trying to think which of these are better. And if I can get a seller to get away from yes or no and say, well, I kind of like this one better, now that they're thinking about yes, right? So it's not always a yes, but I get a much higher yes rate than I think most investors that just submit, here's my offer, best and final, tell me if you want it, yes or no. That's really interesting. And thank you for putting that into perspective for us. That's very interesting. Um, so we, this is kind of a point which we should have gone over earlier, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of circle back to it now. Um, in terms of how you're finding these properties, you know, there are great apps like Rightmove. I don't know if that's a thing in the US, um, but in um in France we've got an app called Avant Halloween, which is like to sell to rent. What are you using to source these properties? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So starting out like 20 years ago, right, there was none of those apps. So I had to figure out a way to find homeowners and look through the data. How long did they own it? Who might be distressed? Who might be ready to move? Um, if I saw a home that was just vacant and dilapidated, right, that homeowner, that's pro that home is probably a burden to them. Right. That home is probably a burden to them because they're like, it's vacant. They're not living there. They inherited it, maybe. And now they got these taxes, you know, rolling and, and, and just kind of building up and they got to pay for insurance. And and if I reach out to them and say, hey, you know, you don't need to do anything. You you just, you know, sell it to me. I'm going to buy it for its current value. I'm going to fix it up. I'll make a profit by doing that. And then I'll rent it out. I'm usually solving their problem. So it was really the old school method when I started out. And still many are doing it that method. But right now, I would say network is the most important way to find um, deals. Almost everything comes through my network now. Um, you know, there's apps out there. There's there's technology out there. But the reality is there's out of 46 deals, I would say, um, every single one came through my network of some sort. So I, I tell everyone what I'm looking for. I typically buy portfolios. So I'm not looking for a one-off property. I'm looking for someone, a mom and pop landlord who's just ready to retire, ready to just exit. Maybe they're tired of, of being a landlord and they have five, 10, 15 properties. Um, and it's hard for them to sell all of them at the same time. It takes them a while to do that. Um, there's some financial hurdles of why it's difficult for them to sell them. And I say, I'll buy all of them at the same time. And so I try to buy in bulk. It saves me time. And then I can pick and choose which I'm, ones I'm going to keep and which ones I'm going to sell off if it's not the right fit for what I want to keep there. Um, but I tell everyone, every time I teach a class, I say, this is what I'm looking for. Every time I post and if I'm, when I was trying to get to that 52 properties every single week, I post it. I say, Hey, we're on property 30 and we need more deals. If you know of anyone that is trying to sell a portfolio, please connect them to us. And your sphere wants you to succeed. If you, if they know what you're trying to achieve, especially if it's something like big, they, they're rooting you on. They're going to say, Hey, let me introduce you to a guy because I want you to hit your goal. Um, so that's where me being more vocal over the last few years and being more open about being a real estate investor has helped my real estate investing career more than anything else, because I can openly say, Hey guys, I'm an investor. I want to buy your property. Or if you know someone looking to sell, um, please contact me. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned networking. I think every you know entrepreneurship or investment success story comes back to that idea of a network. It's really interesting you mentioned that 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 is applicable in your industry. Um, so living in Paris, where the 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 property market is so saturated, there are more people looking to buy homes than there are available. And I get through both of the properties. So I, I rent, and I'm also doing up a property at the moment. Um, it just just um a bit further in, into the centre of Paris, um, I get leaflets through the door every single day saying, "Can we're looking for properties to purchase in the area. Can we buy yours? Is that an effective strategy or not really? I've bought that way and I've sold that way, right? So, so it absolutely is. It's not the most effective strategy because your network is definitely the better option. But, you know, if, if someone... One, it's a numbers game when you do that, when you are just calling people out of the blue or you're leaving a flyer, you got to leave several hundred of those. But the odds are one person in that group is saying, well, I've been thinking about selling anyways, and here's someone ready to buy. Um, let's go ahead and give them a call, right? So so absolutely, properties still happen that way. That is what I did starting out. I knocked on doors, I called people, and I put put flyers out there because I had no real money. I had to put in the manual effort to, uh, to be able to do that. Now, 
you can do online ads and things like that. But uh, that old school approach still definitely works. So we've talked about the successes and, you know, buying 46 properties last year and on track to buy more this year. Um, in terms of the mistakes you've made, I was just interested if there were any and, and why they, why they happened in the first place. Yeah, I have a whole book of my mistakes here. So yeah, there, there's definitely just as many mistakes as uh, successes. And I will say that the beauty of any business owner, entrepreneur, or a real estate investor is a mistake is not failure, right? Um, failure is only if you mistake, have a mistake, and then you stop. Right. If I if I ended on a mistake and I decide to just quit, then then that's that's failure to me. But a mistake is, you know, just like course correcting. Anytime you're on a flight, you're never directly going in that one direction. You're always having to course correct and slowly get back back on track. Right. So um, I've I've made money on deals. I've lost money on deals. Um, and it's always making sure that you have the right protections and it's not extreme one way or the other. Right. And and so for example, doing deals in the pandemic was, was there was a level of risk to that. I wanted to ramp up and buy as much properties as possible um, because people halted in the beginning and they were worried. And anytime people are worried to do something, that's when I go all in because I I know that when people are afraid, that's the best time when there's opportunity. And so that I, I saw that as my opportunity to kind of ramp up my portfolio. Um, but some of the issues were um, everything shut down as we know, right? And if I needed to renovate a property and I factored having it vacant for three months or five months or whatever it may be before I can sell it or rent it. Um, and then everything shut down. And for the inspections, there's, there's here, there's county inspections offices that are required. Um, it was 18 months in some of those areas before we can get those inspections. So what we thought was going to take three months um, of no income from that property sometimes turned into 18 months because that's how long it took to get the renovation done or the inspectors in there. And so, um, definitely painful because it costs money. Um, but the, the lesson you learn is you make sure that you have enough reserves to handle that, right? Enough. Um, you're not spending every single penny that you have. You have a backup plan of what are you going to do if that property can't be sold right away or rented right away, making sure you have the, the, the right level of protections around it. And now I want to move on to kind of a bit more about you. So you're a Mormon, um, which is, which is really cool. You went on a mission. Where did you go for your mission? Yeah, I was in Japan um, in in Sendai, which is really like rice patties. It's not like Tokyo. It's like country, country. Uh, when I was there, um, I would say a lot of the people that I met, like 90-year-old women working in a rice paddy field, I was the first non-Japanese person that they saw in their life. So it's it's cool, you know, when you see a culture like that, beautiful culture, um, but you obviously stand out like a, I'm, I'm 6'5", so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tall compared to the average Japanese person. I frightened a lot of them, but, um, but yeah, so I was, I was a, a missionary out there and, and my name Omni comes from the book of Mormon and, and I'm not an a, a active, uh, you know, church goer at the moment, but it, it's something that I grew up, uh, learning and, and loving and, and had the opportunity when I was eight, 19 to go out and, and volunteer to be this missionary, um, and learned a lot of life lessons while I was out there. Lessons that I think helped me in business, probably more than anything that I've ever done. You've attributed your kind of mission to Japan um, as part of how successful you've been in sales and stuff like that, because obviously it kind of is a sales pitch, right? Door to door kind of trying to get people to convert to your faith or to educate them on the Book of Mormon is a bit like sales. Sure. Um, I was just wondering kind of how you experience um, 
made you like such a good salesman, I guess. Yeah, I would say that more than anything helped, right? There's several things along the way in my kind of business ventures um, that have helped after that. But that was, I'm, I'm, I'm a very introverted person, right? I have a lot of energy, but but my nature is not extroverted um, by any means. And me being put in, me volunteering saying, I'm going to go do this. I need to be good at it, right? So I need to learn how to talk to strangers. I need to learn how to, you know, say what I believe, what I'm passionate about. Uh, we knocked on doors, right? We, we put flyers on on cards to say, come and talk to us. We taught free English classes and we taught about the the gospel, right? And so um, that got me out of my comfort zone. Um, and I realized that, okay, I could survive outside of my comfort zone. And the further I, ex- I stepped out of my comfort zone, the more successful that I was uh, really. And, and, and even what I do right now, I don't necessarily consider it sales. Everything is really sales, but it really is sharing your, your passion, right? And if you have the right passion for something and you're educating them about that passion, then typically um, if they're in the market or if they have a need for it, they're going to buy it. Right. Whether it's religion, whether it's education, whether it's, you know, real estate or some other business, um, I had a passion for it, just like I have a passion for what I'm doing right now. Um, And so that's what I learned. If I have a passion for something, I step outside of your comfort zone, talk to people about it, get your script down in terms of what you what's most important, because as you get passionate, sometimes you forget what you want to say. But that, yes, I learned that along the way. I don't think I'm anywhere near where I would be today if I did not have that experience. And in terms of the language, but because that must the language barrier must have been a huge thing. How did you how did you get over that? Just out of yeah. So so growing up in Hawaii, uh, Japanese is uh, a language that we learn in school. So it wasn't foreign to me. I'm actually part Japanese myself. My my mom's half Hawaiian, half Japanese. So it's part of my culture. And so I had um, an interest in it, and I, I learned the basics in school. Not fluent by any means, but it wasn't foreign. Um, but the best way to learn something is just to be immersed in it. And so the reality is two years of living in Japan with people that only speak Japanese will eventually get you to the point of you have to learn it, right? You have to learn it or you're going to tap out and say, I need to go home. And so we, every morning we studied every morning, we, you know, uh, we not just learned about the gospel even further, but we learned about the language and because we had something we wanted to say, but we had to be able to speak their language to be able to do that. So I would say it took me a good three to five months to feel comfortable and, and, and become fluent. Um, but there's no way I would have been able to do that if I wasn't immersed in the culture itself. Awesome. I love that. I'm such, I've got such a passion for languages. Part of the reason why I moved to France in the first place was so I could truly call myself, um, I'm, I'm half French, my mother's French as well. So I guess it's similar to you, but I didn't feel like I could call myself French, um, without living in France for a certain period of time. And, um, you know, I speak French every day. I speak French with my friends, you know, um, so really immersing myself in that culture and I can finally, you know, call myself properly fluent in French. Um, so yeah. Um, now my final question is it, uh, and I ask this to everybody, but I'm going to adapt the question slightly um, for this episode. So if, if you could describe a good or successful real estate investor in three words, what three words would they be and why? Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if real estate investor is different than entrepreneur because it's probably very similar. I think grit is is so important and so grit there's a great book out there called grit um and and, and really um on my business card i call myself a grit paragon and all that means is someone that just doesn't give up right someone that is just obsessive over something um because there's you have to have failures you're going to have failures no matter what it's impossible to only succeed your entire life and if you 
the moment you fail, you give up. That's not grit, right? So understanding grit, I think, you know, humility is important because, um, you know, without humility, you're not going to ask for help. You're not going to say, I don't know what I'm doing and raise your hand and you're not going to attract the right mentors. Um, people ask me all the time to mentor them. Um, but sometimes they come in saying, Hey, I, I, I know a lot already. I just need help on this one thing. Um, you know, I, I don't want to waste my time on someone that knows everything already. Right. I, I, I really, if you, I know, I don't know everything. And so when I go to my mentors, I say, just assume I know nothing. Tell me how you got to your level. Um, and so, yeah, humility and grit are the two most important things. If I had to pick a third one, I would say, you know, I don't know what the word is, but being able to step outside of your comfort zone. So um, comfortable being uncomfortable is, is extremely important. I am. Um, once I was, it was actually with an art teacher, but the example is relevant here. So she kind of drew a Venn diagram. It's like what you're comfortable with, um, what you're semi-comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with at all. And outside of that, outside of those like um, two Venn diagrams, but in, in the third kind of section um, was where the magic happens. Um, yeah. So when you're not comfortable with something and then you're putting, you're kind of stepping outside of your comfort zone, like I guess I'm doing with the podcast, I guess, that's where the magic happens. That's where, you know, the spark, that's where that everything kind of ignites. Um, now, lastly, I just wanted to ask you, if anybody wants to, you know, find out more about you or purchase your book, where can they go? Yeah, the book's on Amazon. Um, you can go to my website, omnitheinvestorguy.com. I'm on multiple social media channels now, um, trying to provide free content, free education about real estate and business in general. And my handle is omnitheinvestorguy on just about every single channel. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been super interesting talking to you. It's been a bit, a bit of a longer episode this week, um, but it's been super interesting chatting to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. Absolutely no worries. An enormous thank you from me for listening to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from and a written review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you want to find out more about me or Omni, all the relevant links will be in the show notes below. I wish you a fantastic rest of the week and I'll see you next Wednesday with another episode. Bye for now.